the monetary system that we have right now and since 1913 wasn't just thought up of, you know, from the six men that stole away in the secret of the night in 1910 in November to Jekyll Island to kind of architect this monetary system. It really has been in the works all the way back to the dawn of humanity tying into the Nephilim agenda. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, it blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 68. I interview Laura Sanger about her book, The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. Dollar. We get into what the Federal Reserve is, tying that back to the Nephilim, get into Nimrod, how we see the post-flood giants, Esau, the Edomites, and making a connection from there to modern-day Rome. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome. Uh, I'm excited. Um, I really feel like you have a unique perspective on uh, a very popular topic, so I'm excited to kind of get into that. Um, And even amongst what I've heard about Nephilim, in the Federal Reserve, I've never seen a volume that addresses both, makes a connection between the two, so it's really fascinating. So uh, anyway, I do want to hear some of your background as far as how you came to Christ. Uh, So why don't we start there just by hearing a little bit how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Sure. Yeah. Well, I am actually fourth generation follower of Jesus. So um, I came to the Lord when I was very young. In fact, I think it was in my grandmother's vacation Bible school. And so I grew up just always knowing Jesus. And of course, you know, you wander and you fall away here and there. But for the most part, you know, I've been walking with Jesus since I was probably four or five. And my grandmother um, was a huge influence in my spiritual walk. She was just an amazing woman of God. She um, not only did she have an incredible prayer life, but she was infectious. Like I talked to just the love of Jesus would flow out of her. And it was so cool to be around. And I remember when I was um, young and I would spend the night at her house, she uh, was a morning person like I am. And she would be praying in her basement uh, for hours and hours. And I would get up and I would go into the bathroom because in their bathroom, there was a laundry chute that went down into the basement. And I would open the door to the laundry chute and just lay on the floor and listen to her pray because she was so fervent in her intercession. And that's really when I, I learned that there was such a thing as praying in tongues, you know, having a spiritual prayer language was listening to my grandmother. And so I grew up knowing about signs and wonders because she uh, had many miracles that happened in her life. And both her and my grandfather were instrumental in, you know, leading a a lot of people to the Lord. They would have, Hmm. you know, Bible studies in their home, prayer gatherings. I remember one story um, where they, they lived in Chicago area and they were in downtown Chicago and they had kind of a, a basement apartment and they had a prayer meeting in 
their basement apartment and they had to have the windows open because there's no air conditioning back then. And the spirit of God was so strong coming out of that prayer meeting that it would affect people walking by on the sidewalk. And so that's the heritage in which I come from. And I'm so grateful because she, she was also prophetic. And so that's really shaped who I am. I'm, I'm a prophetic intercessor and just absolutely love cultivating an intimate relationship with the Lord uh, because I watched her and her relationship with Jesus. Jesus was her best friend, her Lord, her savior, her absolute everything. And so I've really tried to walk in her shoes, in her mantle, and it's, you know, a tough act to follow for sure, but I'm so grateful for her influence in my life. Yeah, that's incredible. So a couple follow-ups. Um, I want to know specifically, how were those people affected on the sidewalk? And then um, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by a prophetic intercessor? Yeah. So um, again, this is kind of stories from what I've gathered from other family members, but there was one time where there was a police officer uh, that was going to like shut down the prayer meeting because there, there was just people packed in the apartment mm. and overflowing. And it just was too many people. It was creating a fire hazard. Fire hazard yeah. And so this policeman came um to shut it down. And he was deeply impacted by the power of God. And so never shut it down and just let it continue. Oh, wow. And so it's, I don't know if you've ever been in that tangible presence of the Lord where it's almost like, you know, when you stick your finger in a light socket, you have that electric shock. Well, when you come into the tangible presence of the Lord, it affects your body in some way or another. And um, so I think that's what was happening to those people that were walking by on the sidewalk, you know, just minding their own business. And then they have this encounter with the tangible presence of the Lord. So, and then uh, your other question was, what's a prophetic intercessor? So, um, you know, how the Lord uses me is oftentimes he will give me visions uh, and show me things that um, we need to pray into. And so, um, I'll just use one example. Um, recently, uh, I, I gather with um, different groups of people that pray. And so we have what's called regional intercession on uh, a Monday night. And it's, you know, once a month we gather. And this past Monday, um, I, I didn't really put two and two together that it was right before the summer solstice. Anyways, we were gathering and we were praying and we were praying particularly for survivors of satanic ritual abuse because the Lord keeps bringing people into my life um, that have come out of this. And one of the intercessors said, we need to stop calling them survivors. They're overcomers. We need to speak into their destiny. And so we just began praying into that um, and something happened inside of me that's only happened two other times. And the Lord brought me to this place of travailing intercession. And what that is, um, it's a very intense place of prayer where, um, you know, it, I liken it to birthing a, a child, you know, when you are travailing in, in that labor in that transition phase of labor, you're birthing something. And so often travailing prayer is 
just so intense that you're bringing forth something that the Lord wants to bring forth into the earth realm. And so oftentimes, for, well, it's only happened three times, all three times I come into a, a place of just absolute weeping. And that's what happened Monday night. As we were praying, I began seeing images of some of what these overcomers have gone through in their lives. And I saw images of mothers having to watch their children being tortured in front of them. And it just completely undid me. And so I just began weeping. And one of the other intercessors, she said, let's stay here because what's happening is the Lord is moving on Laura through travailing intercession. And so there were many tears from, from the intercessors. And when we were done, it was kind of this like groaning that was coming forth and just sobbing. Um, and, and then others were declaring scriptures and praying But when we were done, we just, we had this sense that the Lord moved so powerfully that lives were saved. We don't know who or how or what, but we just had this incredible um, sense that God, God literally saved lives through our intercession. Well, the next day that um, the Lord gave me a dream and I posted it on my telegram channel and I had some people reach out to me that are overcomers. And they said that the summer solstice was so intense for them. And I didn't even put two and two together that, Mm. I mean, of course, I know that the summer solstice can be very intense, but for whatever reason, I didn't put that together with, you know, our intercession happening the night before the summer solstice. And um, two overcomers reached out and, and talked about how intense the attack was on their life on the, the evening of the summer solstice, but the Lord brought them through that. And so wow. I just am so grateful because even when we don't understand the timing, but mm. when we come before the Lord and we just seek his presence and we want to bring down into the earth realm, what he's releasing in heaven, we can be conduits of his, of his Holy spirit and of his mm. power. So that's a recent, recent example of prophetic intercession. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, we first mentioned about the, about your grandmother's prayer room. It re- reminded me of Saul, which at the time, and he was, uh, I guess he was, I don't know if he was looking for David or for he was looking for Samuel, but he ended up, um, prophesying because the spirit came upon him in a very powerful way. And this is like after he had like, you know, tried to kill David and, and had a, a, a tormenting evil spirit on him. Uh, and so that's uh, kind of just what came to my mind, because um, it's really kind of that same sort of thing, where even someone who would be, you know, nefarious and malicious, still can be overcome by the Spirit of God, um, would just by just walking in the presence. And he prophesied in that moment, which is pretty, which is just crazy. Um so I want to get into your to to your book. Like I said earlier, it's really unique because I've um, I've read a lot about the Nephilim, and I'm familiar with the the island of uh, Jekyll Island, the creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, I think I read that like year, years ago, and so I was aware of the Federal Reserve, 
and that they're privately owned and but I never heard anyone make a connection between the two and right off the bat when I read the title it it makes sense um but then man it is just nuts reading um you had a chapter in there where you talked about the natives from the the from Jekyll Island mm-hmm. oh my goodness um and it it's just it was unbelievable. Um, so anyway, you uncover a lot, and I want to get to the Federal Reserve. You know what? Why don't we just start there? Um, because um, that's kind of – you kind of start there in your book, and then you end up getting in, in, into Nephilim and then going back to the Federal Reserve. So why don't you just start just by telling us a little bit um, about how this book came about because you you kind of start your intro into the book about kind of how your research began, began about it. Um, so tell us a little bit about how this book came about and then just let us know really what the federal reserve is. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a really unique writing experience for me because I never intended to write a book on the federal reserve. I'm a psychologist by profession. So why is a psychologist writing a book on the federal reserve? You know, I, I'm not an expert on the monetary system or economics or anything like that, but it really started in 2014 when um, I felt the Lord nudging me to write what's called a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. And so I did that. Are you familiar at all with what spiritual mapping is? I've heard you speak about it on on interviews, and I think you wrote about it. Um, So just I'm familiar from what you've what you've spoken about it, but you can yeah. elaborate on it for the, for the listener that may not have any idea what that is. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a niche and not many people have heard about what spiritual mapping. And so it first was, the term was coined by George Otis Jr. in 1991. Uh, but essentially what it involves is, you know, digging through history, uh, gathering research on the physical, the social and the spiritual pulse of you know, whether it's a society you're looking at or an institution or a people group, a city, a nation, whatever it is that spiritual mapping assignment is. And so what you're doing is you're digging through history to uncover the roots of defilement. And so that's, you know, it ties to what my, the, the title of my book, the roots of the federal reserve. So essentially my book is this huge spiritual mapping project, but um, kind of the, the overall nitty gritty of spiritual mapping is it involves three different components. So there's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. And I like doing all three, but, you know, on our team over the years, we've had different people just do portions of it, but essentially um, with reconnaissance, what we do is we send a team of people out onto the land, whatever it is that we are, is the focus of our mapping project. And, these people are generally very gifted in uh, discernment. And so, you know, they can feel what's happened on the land. We have seers that can see into the spiritual realm. And so the Lord will show us things that have transpired on the land before that cause defilement that affect the people. We've even at times mm-hmm. had people that can actually hear what the land is communicating. And so 
it can be really a powerful time. And what we do is, you know, we just take notes as we're out on the land. And a biblical example of this is when Moses sent the 12 spies into Canaan or when Joshua sent the two spies into Jericho. So we gather all this information and then we pair it with the research component. And what that involves is, you know, looking through historical documents. Um, we want, we also will obtain demographic data. We'll interview local people to kind of get their perspective on what's happened on the land and how it's in fact impacting the people. And then we've also found that newspaper articles can be incredibly helpful at, at piecing all of this together. And so we take the reconnaissance information and the research information, and then we write up what's called a prayer brief or a spiritual mapping prayer brief. And those are generally between five to 10 pages, depending on the size of the, the project. And what we're doing is we're identifying targeted prayer strategies because we want to get at the root of the spiritual issue. And what we've discovered and other spiritual mappers have discovered over the years is there's four types of iniquity that can establish a stronghold on the land. So, you know, that's sexual immorality, idolatry, broken covenants, and then bloodshed. And so what we're doing is we are identifying whether or not these things have happened on the land. And again, kind of the overall goal of spiritual mapping is we want to inform intercession. We want to equip those intercessors to be able to then later go onto the land and uproot whatever wicked structures have been established, you know, break off curses, decree the Lord's purposes, and then release the full measure of blessings that God has intended, because ultimately we want to see people set free and we want to see the land flourish. And we want to see institutions be able to reach their you know, full God intended purpose. So anyways, that's what spiritual mapping is. And so in 2014, I wrote a spiritual mapping brief on the Federal Reserve and gathered, you know, a few intercessors and we came together and prayed through those targeted prayer strategies. And then I, I thought my assignment was done. You know, I thought, okay, I I've done what the Lord has asked me to do. I can move on, but probably over the next year, year and a half, the Lord just kept nudging me to get back to the Federal Reserve. And Finally, in 2016, I did. And the first year of researching and writing, I really didn't know what I was writing because it was getting way too long for a prayer brief. And then in 2017, the Lord finally um, showed me that he was having me write a book. And, you know, when when I wrote this book, it, it really was um, I I refer to it as writing it in real time, which means you know, as I was writing chapter five of the book, I had no idea how everything would come together. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know if it would make sense in the end, you know, if the, the dots would connect. And so for four years, it really was an act of obedience every day, waking up and saying, okay, Lord, what do you have for me? Show me what you want me to understand. And my constant prayer was Jeremiah 33, three, which says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. And I have to tell you that definitely happened because I was, hmm. I was surprised by what the Lord led me to. And so anyways, the, the book, you know, the research I did for this book, it spans from the dawn of humanity to our current day. And I was able to identify this Nephilim agenda 
that has defiled our monetary system and practically every institution in our land. And so, you know, I trace this agenda, like I said, from the days of Noah to our current debt enslavement system we call the Federal Reserve. And, you know, I know since the book was published uh, in November of 2020, I know that the Lord's called me to walk in Ephesians 5.11, which says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So I want to thank you, first of all, for letting me come on your show, because, you know, I haven't spoken to your audience before. And I know that, you know, it's so important what God has given me to bring is just to awaken people to the impact of the Nephilim agenda today. And so I'm appreciative of being able to come on your show. Yeah. Well, um, you are welcome. Um, I'm glad you're here. I want to say that it's definitely an, an expose. I remember when I first learned about the the Federal Reserve, just how eye-opening that was to me. But it's neat because I think so often when we learn about Nephilim, a lot of it's like stuck there in Genesis 6. And a lot of people just kind of see this as, if it, and it's not in Genesis 6, it's like David and Goliath. And so it's almost there's a huge disconnect between it just almost becomes like a a neat thing to study fringe weird thing that's in the bible you know and there's no connection to us today and how we live and man when um when you make a connection to the federal reserve it's like i said it it does make sense because when I learned about the Federal Reserve, which I, I want you to elaborate on now, um, and you talk about enslavement, it's 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 a little I don't want to say the word frightening, but it's uh it's a little disheartening just to know how deep those roots go, um, and just how evil it is, really. So so for those that kinda don't know what we might be referring to talking about the Federal Reserve because most people just know that that's like where the money comes from. How is this, how is this connected to some, to, to the Nephilim? Well, maybe where a good place for me to start is just to share what I think every American needs to understand about the federal reserve. And then I can tie it to um, the Nephilim agenda and unpack like, what is the Nephilim agenda? So you know, start with as far as the Federal Reserve, you know, it's important to understand that it is, um, you know, it's an independent agency that's made up of privately owned central or not central banks, privately owned banks. And so it's run by uh, a board of governors, which is generally there's seven on the board. And then also it's run by 12 regional banks and then also what's called the Federal Open Market Committee. So what you have is uh, the president of the United States will appoint uh, the Federal Reserve board members and then the Senate will confirm them. While the Federal Reserve headquarters are in Washington, D.C., it is not a government agency. And I think that's what can be so confusing for people. Mm. In fact, um, the term federal in their name was literally meant to obfuscate the truth. And yeah. so, you know, Alan Greenspan, he was once a Federal Reserve um, chairman. He was once asked, what is the proper relationship between the president of the United States and the Federal Reserve chair? And I, I just want to read what he has to say. He says, well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means 
basically that there is no other agency of government which can override the actions that we take, which is mind-blowing that he admits that. So essentially what they're saying is there are no checks and balances on mm. the Federal Reserve. And you know what's happened over the years is we see like the Federal Reserve has just stealthily extended its tentacles. And in doing so, it has exponentially increased its power. And I'll describe a little bit of what that what you know what's happened with that. So Back in 1944, um, the Brenton Woods Agreement established a global monetary system in which foreign central banks agreed to fix their currency to the U.S. dollar instead of to gold. And the reason they did that is because the U.S. held the majority of the world's gold after World War II. So essentially what happened is this Brenton Woods Agreement became it. it essentially allowed the US dollar to be crowned the, the world's global currency. And what the US did in turn is they promised um, to the foreign central banks that they would redeem the dollars in gold pegged at $35 per ounce. Now, one of the main problems with the Brenton Woods system is that there was no limits placed on the Federal Reserve with regard to their currency creation. And at the time, there was a high demand from these foreign countries to produce the dollar. And so, of course, the, the Federal Reserve obliged and they just kept creating currency. Well, that outpaced the growth of gold in reserves. So what happened in 1971 is our economy hit what's called stagflation, which means slow growth and high inflation. And quite frankly, it's, it's what we're experiencing now as well. Mm -hmm. So back then what happened is that made these foreign countries very nervous about whether or not they would be able to convert their dollar into gold. And so there was this looming run on gold that was about to happen. So in 1971, President Nixon met with 15 of the top financial advisors and of course, the Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, Arthur Burns, he was part of that. And they met at Camp David in August of 1971. And what they did is they essentially established a new economic policy in which they were going to end the dollar's convertibility into gold. And the whole purpose of that was to stave off this looming gold run. So in 1971, what Nixon did is he ended... Um, you know, essentially he took us off the gold standard. And from that point forward, the U.S. dollar has been considered a fiat currency. Now, there's not a lot of people that really understand what a fiat currency is. And again, this is really important for every American to understand. A fiat currency means essentially that it's backed by nothing. And what happens throughout history, what we see is that empires and nations that debase their currencies collapse. You know, fiat currencies have failed 100% of the time because what happens is they buckle under the weight of debt and gold always wins. So that's something important to keep in mind. Now, more recently, in more recent history, last couple of hundred years, what we see is about every 30 to 40 years, there's a major shift in the monetary system. Well, we are 52 years into this fiat currency system, and I believe our economy is on the edge of implosion. So we really need to move away from 
this central banking system in order for our nation to prosper. So that's important to understand. Another aspect is um, simply to understand that the product of the Federal Reserve is debt. So if people were to take out you know, a dollar bill and you look at the top, it says Federal Reserve note. Well, a note is a debt instrument. It's an IOU. And so what the Federal Reserve has done is they have created uh, money magic to enslave us. And I want to describe what I mean by that. So you know, if you were um, to imagine being at um, a magic show, for example, and, um, you know, a magician pulls out of thin air the first ever $1 bill and he hands it to you and he says, you can use it however you want, but you have to pay me back $1 plus interest. Well, you're probably thinking to yourself, where am I going to get the interest if this is the first ever $1 bill? So then the magician pulls out of thin air a second $1 bill and gives it to you. And so now you're thinking, okay, now I have the interest to be able to pay or the money to pay the interest. But he says, no, I need $2 back plus interest. So again, you're in the same predicament. Now this magician pulls out of thin air the third $1 bill. And uh, by this point, you realize that this is an endless cycle. There is no possible way to pay off the IOU. Well, this is the debt enslavement trick that the Federal Reserve has used. Essentially, the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air, and it's really just paper. Again, it's a fiat currency. It's not backed by anything. Oftentimes, it's just digital numbers on a computer screen. And what's alarming is that the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, it admits to this. And let me read to you what they say. They say, when you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there's no bank deposit on which that check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it's creating money. So the term reserve in the name Federal Reserve was really a sleight of hand because they never had reserves by which they lend out money. The Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air. And then the other really important thing to understand kind of connected to what I was explaining with this magic show is that the same year the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, Congress ratified the 16th Amendment of the Constitution, and that allowed them to impose federal income tax for the first time. So the reason we pay federal income tax is so that the interest on the dollars borrowed by the Federal Reserve can be paid. And that is, um, you know, just one other way that they exploit us. And so when you think about it, when the Federal Reserve sends billions of dollars to other nations, which, you know, we just did with Ukraine, we Americans are on the hook for that bill. So that's also something important. Now, a lot of people don't understand that our banking system is built upon what I would refer to as a house of cards, and it's called fractional reserve banking. Now, fractional reserve banking is uh, the practice of holding only a portion of deposits within reserves. And it's based on the likelihood that depositors won't withdraw all their money at one time, but rather they will stagger their withdrawals. So the Fed essentially has set reserve requirements for each of the banks at 10%. Now, what does that mean? So 
if I take $100 of my money and I deposit it in the bank, in my bank, they're only required to keep $10 in reserves. Then what they do is they take the other $90. Again, this is my money. They take that $90 and they loan it out. And when they loan it out, they charge high interest so that they can make lots of money off of my money. Meanwhile, they're giving me a measly less than 1% in interest for the privilege of having access to my money. Right. A lot of people don't understand that, but this is yet just another way that they exploit us. And I think it all comes down to greed. You know, greed is this compelling driving force that causes, you know, bankers and investors to engage in what's called moral hazards. And we really saw an example of this through the Great Recession of 2008. You know, what happened there is the dollar signs that were attached to these risky investments really were more enticing to them than you know, these investors making sound investments. And then what happened too is the too big to fail banks, they understood that if they teetered on the edge of insolvency, the Federal Reserve would just rescue them. And so, you know, the normal checks and balances uh, that you find in accounting practices, those were all manipulated into shadow banking practices, uh, what's called off balance sheet accounting. And so then you have these hotshot investors that created these new streams of cash flow uh, that were exploiting the lower um, standards within the mortgage lending industry. And that was all set up by the Clinton presidency. And so here you have these hotshot investors, you know, they essentially through the shadow banking system created the derivatives market, which is yet another tool of obfuscation. And back in 2007, um, you know, kind of the king of the derivatives market was J.P. Morgan Chase. And, you know, one of the things that I did in researching my book is I, you know, I wanted to, to get at like what really happened in 2008. And, you know, one of the things that I looked at was some of these reports that the Office of the Comptroller of Currency puts out. And so in 2007, it showed that, J.P. Morgan Chase was leveraged 64 to 1 in the derivatives market. Now, what that means is for every dollar that the bank had, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank had in assets, they were in debt $64 tied to purchases in the derivatives market. And so the derivatives market is essentially fractional reserve banking mm. on crack. It is insane. And unfortunately, wow. it's endemic in our banking system. And so, you know, what you had then is when this massive bubble burst in 2008, it caused the worst um, economic collapse since the Great Depression. And what the Federal Reserve did is, you know, the Federal Reserve is supposed to be the lender of last resort, but they stepped in as lender of first resort. And in 2008, they awarded these massive bailouts at near zero interest rate to the very banks that were engaged in the moral hazard to begin with. And so what what they effectively did is by lending freely and then they bought up all these junk investments that the Wall Street investors wouldn't even touch anymore. By doing that, they communicated to the too big to fail banks that they 
they could just continue in the reckless behavior and they would get bailed out by the federal reserve. And so you wonder like, did the banks change their behavior? And I just recently checked the, the most recent report from the OCC, the office of comptroller currency. And this is for the third quarter of 2021. And what it shows is that these two big to fail banks have not changed their practices. In fact, they've engaged in reckless behavior and Goldman Sachs as of this last report is leveraged 124 to one. Now, again, in 2007, right before the implosion, uh, JP Morgan Chase was leveraged 64 to one. And I also want to put this into context too, because Lehman Brothers, I don't know if you remember, but Lehman Brothers was deemed insolvent in 2008 and they were forced to close their doors. And that caused 25,000 employees to lose their job. Well, they were only leveraged five to one when that happened. So here we have Goldman Sachs leveraged 124 to one right now. And you know, their reckless behavior could be a trigger to an economic implosion. And, you know, what happens to us, there's a ripple effect worldwide. And so, you know, all of that is kind of the backdrop of what, well, it's not the backdrop. It's really what we as Americans need to understand about our monetary system. And, you know, for me and doing all this research, um, it has caused me to draw even closer to the Lord because I recognize I, I can't rely on my bank to do the right thing. I can't even rely on, you know, in 2008, we had our personal investments with financial advisors, but I, I can't even trust financial advisors because not everyone has the best interest in mind. They're looking out to protecting themselves. And So I realized my trust needs to rely on the Lord, on the Father. He is so good at providing. And, you know, just as an encouragement to us all that we just need to lean into the Father um, and trust that whatever happens moving forward, if our economy does completely implode, he is so good to provide for us. You know, I think about that passage in Matthew 6, where it talks about how he, you know, he closed the birds of the air. Or no, he closed the lilies of the field and he feeds the birds of the air. And how much more will he do so for us? And so I lean upon that. But that's that's kind of the here and now about the Federal Reserve and and the history of it since its inception in 1913. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that last part, because, man, when you talk about this, like a feeling of hopelessness that can come upon you. And, you know, I think I think a, a Psalm 91, and I, I kind of have to just like cling to to that truth that God's going to provide for me and take care of me, um, because I can't put any trust in, in in this system. With that being said, you know, there's a lot of I've heard talks since 2008 about an economic collapse in a one world currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a couple questions. One would be like, what would be the trigger? that would cause this house of cards to fall? And then two, is it in the these private bankers' interest for that collapse? Absolutely. Right? I mean, is, is, is that the, the plan all along, is to then move out, what, phase two, which is this new new currency? 
Yeah, well, really, they're they're trying to move us towards the global reset, which is what Klaus Schwab is, or excuse me, the Great Reset is what Klaus Schwab talks about. And, you know, I would say that um, there are multiple triggers. There's not just one trigger that could cause this all to collapse. And, you know, what we've seen uh, since the switch in presidency in this new administration, we've seen you know, gas prices increase. We've seen um, inflation like we haven't seen in 40 years. I mean, it's crazy. And I think it's a real wake up call that the Federal Reserve um, is part of a master plan. And this is what my book addresses, because like I said, I go all the way back to the dawn of humanity that, you know, what we're, our, the monetary system that we have right now and since 1913 wasn't just thought up of, you know, from the six men that stole away in the secret of the night in 1910 in November to Jekyll Island to kind of architect this monetary system. It really has been in the works all the way back to the dawn of humanity tying into the Nephilim agenda. Hmm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, so, so let's let let's uh, let's go there um, to talk about Nephilim. You you pose a a theory that was similar to a couple of guests that I've had on this show. I've had uh, Ryan Peterson on, and I've had Doug Hamp, and they both talked about the post flood giants. And I think you know Ryan was a proponent of Ham's wife carrying the gene. Uh, and, and Doug Hamp talked about, he talked about Nimrod being um, possessed and that essentially changing his DNA, which would then allow, you know, you know, a, a ch- him becoming a, a Gabor, you know, essentially him changing physically. And so you're sort of knocking on some of those same doors mm-hmm. with what a theory that you proposed in your book was very, very, very interesting. Um, so tell us your take on how we have post-flood giants. Okay. Yeah. And I actually, I find this so fascinating because, you know, it's really the age old question. How were there giants on the earth after the flood? Did God not wipe them all out? And of course there's all sorts of theories that we hear, but I think the, the primary theories, there's two, one is called single incursion theory. And the other one is called multiple incursion theory. So, you know, I, I go in depth in my book, as you mentioned, but in a nutshell, single incursion is the theory that there was only one time in human history where the divine mated with humans. And that's what we read about in Genesis six. Multiple incursion is the theory that there were multiple times when the divine mated with humans. Now, you know, a multiple incursion of the same magnitude as what we see in Genesis 6, I don't think that can be substantiated in the historical record. But that doesn't mean that multiple incursions didn't happen. You know, when we think about even the Mesopotamian culture, they had a tradition of sacred marriage uh, where there was a a marriage between uh, a goddess and a king. And that would be an example of a multiple incursion. Now, where I think it gets really fascinating is uh, in thinking about single incursion, 
epigenetics really is the key that unlocks our understanding of how single incursion could explain the presence of giants on the earth after the flood. So epigenetics kind of simply stated is really the impact that our lifestyle choices and our behaviors have on our body, soul, and spirit, as well as our future generations. And so, you know, the prefix epi means on top of, so it's a set of instructions that sits on top of the gene. Now there's also something called epigenetic markers, and we can think about those like light switches, you know, you turn on or off the gene. Now, I, you know, one of the things that I love to do in my book is I just, um, I'm a learner. I love to learn. I'm always asking these questions in my head, you know, to research. And I came across some fascinating research um, along the lines of kind of this transgenerational component to epigenetics. And one of the studies is by a group of Swedish researchers. This was back in 2006. And the lead researcher's name, his name was Pembry, in case anyone wants to look it up. But what they found is that the eating and lifestyle choices of prepubescent boys impacted their progeny for two generations. So essentially, in their research, they found that boys that either overate and or smoked at a, around the age of 10 had children and grandchildren with significantly shorter lifespans. So that really shows us that there is this impact with epigenetics throughout our bloodline. And one of the books that I absolutely enjoyed reading, in fact, it probably was one of my most favorite books. I, I have 553 references in my, my book, and so I read a ton. But this one, if anyone is interested in understanding epigenetics more, um, Dr. Carolyn Leaf wrote a book called um, Switch on Your Brain. And I'll read an excerpt from what she said about this. She says, the sins of parents create a predisposition, not a destiny. So our choices, again, those are those epigenetic signals. Our choices alter the expression of our genes. So the expression of our genes are epigenetic markers. And she says, these can be passed on to our children and grandchildren, ready to predispose them even before they've been conceived. So our bad choices become their bad predispositions. Well, in light of this, um, you know, the Lord led me to some key scriptures that really unlocked this. And one of them is uh, Genesis 6, 9, and I'll read it. It says, and these are the origins of Noah. Noah was a just man being perfect in his generation. Noah was well-pleasing to God. So when we think about that phrase, um, being perfect in his generation, it essentially means that Noah's genealogy, you know, his genome was not corrupted by the Nephilim. So he was 100% human as were his wife and sons. But here's where it ties into what you were saying some of your other guests have talked about. And that is, you know, there's, there's a possibility that one or more of the wives of Noah's sons were a carrier of the Nephilim genes. And again, I go into more depth in my book, but, you know, we can look at the life of Ham and we see that there's this pattern of sexual perversion in his life. So it wouldn't be too surprising if he chose a wife that had the Nephilim genes. Now, if in fact Ham's wife had the Nephilim genes, but she had an epigenetic marker that turned it off, a curse over her bloodline could unzip that, could unlock that Nephilim gene. And I believe that's what we see in the life of Nimrod. 
So we see that Ham's bad choices become Nimrod's bad predispositions. And he acted upon that, which then unlocked the Nephilim gene. And, you know, there's um, another passage that the Lord led me to that really holds a clue to understand this. And this is Genesis 10, 8. And so it says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, one of the things that I love to do um, in my book was I, I performed what I like to call an archaeological dig on language. And so, you know, when you look at the etymology of the word, so you're looking at the meaning in the original language, it unlocks so much. And this, this passage is actually an example of that. So since this was written in the Old Testament, you know, that largely was written in Hebrew. So if we look at the Hebrew meaning of some of these words, just in this verse alone, it really unlocks things, as I mentioned. So first of all, Nimrod's name means rebellion. And, you know, that's one of the hallmark traits of the Nephilim. And then the phrase he began it means it's the Hebrew word halal, and it means to profane, defile, or pollute oneself through ritual or sexual means. Now, when I discovered that, I literally nearly fell off my chair because there is no way, like you read that passage in the English and there's no way you're going to pick up yeah. on what's happening here, but this was huge. So we'll hold on to that for a minute. The other Hebrew word uh, that jumps out here is mighty men is Gabor. And you mentioned that just a minute ago. And Gabor means strong, mighty, valiant, giant, chief, tyrant. And it means impetuous soldier or hunter. And it comes from the root word Gabar, which means to prevail, to be strong, to show oneself mighty and to act proudly toward God. And the first mention of the word Gabor in scripture is in Genesis 6, 4, and it's describing the Nephilim. So when you put all these pieces together, you know, Nimrod, he wasn't born with the phenotype of the Nephilim, but by defiling his genome, by engaging in those ritualistic sex acts, like we learned from that phrase, he began, he unlocked those those Nephilim genes. And so here we have Nimrod's grandfather, Ham, you know, through his iniquity of disrespectfully gazing at Noah's nakedness, what he did is he then created a predisposition for sexual perversion in his children and grandchildren. Ham's iniquity with Noah's curse in conjunction with Ham's wife, potentially being a carrier of the Nephilim gene, that set the stage for the Nephilim phenotype to emerge after the flood. So then with Ham, excuse me, with Nimrod engaging in those deviant sexual acts, again, he unzipped that dormant Nephilim gene that was in his bloodline. And that could explain how Nimrod becomes a Gabor or becomes a giant or becomes a demigod. Now, when I, when I was putting those pieces together, I realized, okay, I need to understand as much as I can about Nimrod, his character, what they were doing with the Tower of Babel, because, you know, in the in the back of my mind, I knew what the Lord wanted me to do was develop a set of proposed criteria to identify Nephilim traits within individuals. And I can talk about that in a minute, because that's the, the term I coined in my book, Nephilim host. So anyways, as I was as I was thinking about the life of Nimrod. You know, as you study through um, different passages in scripture, 
you really begin to see that Nimrod had this desire for control and manipulation and domination over others. You know, he suppressed his subjects through fear and intimidation. All of those things are traits of the Nephilim. And, you know, one of the things that we discover about Nimrod is this was Satan's first attempt to raise up a type of Antichrist. And most biblical scholars agree that, you know, Nimrod was the first world leader in human history. So the way I think about it is he was the first globalist, so to speak. And now Nimrod, he was filled with such pride and arrogance. You know, he thought he could create something with his own hands in the Tower of Babel that would outmaneuver Almighty God. So, you know, he he really um, brought such defilement into the land. And one of the things that's interesting to think about, and again, looking at the etymology of the word Babel, if you look at it in the Akkadian language, it means gate of the gods. And of course, it's a play on the Hebrew meaning, which means confusion. Um, so as part of the process of research, and I was like, okay, you know, why did they build this Tower of Babel? And we see, we get a glimpse of their motivation when we look at Genesis 11, 4. And this says, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So, you know, when we look at that phrase um, so that we may make a name for ourselves in the Hebrew, essentially what it means is to build a monument or a memorial to draw fame and glory. So again, this kind of exposes the motivation of Nimrod and his followers, what they wanted to do is they wanted to build something that would draw attention to themselves, draw that fame and glory so that subsequent generations would revere them. Well, this is essentially the pride of life. And, and this points to what the Gabor are after. They're after this desire of becoming men of renown, making a name for themselves. But one of the, the other interesting things in my research, I, one of the books I read was called On the Path of the Immortals by uh, Thomas Horn and Chris Putnam. And again, I was, you know, really intrigued by, you know, what did the Tower of Babel accomplish? What was the purpose of it? And in this book, what they um, propose is that the Tower of Babel was a stargate. It was is a portal similar to the Great Pyramid, and it was inspired by this forbidden knowledge. And so when you begin to think about, okay, so here's Nimrod, starts off a man, you know, has these Nephilim genes potentially in his bloodline, defiles his genome through these ritualistic sex acts, unzips this Nephilim gene, now has kind of become this demigod. It would make sense that he would have discernment as to where these portals and stargates are. And so really what he did is he fueled this insatiable hunger within the people of Babel to create these dimensional portals that would literally provide access for the sexual union between the divine, these spiritual beings and the cult priests and priestesses. So within Nimrod, you have both the example of single incursion through the epigenetics but he essentially also set the stage for multiple incursions. And so when I think about the age old question, um, you know, how are there giants on the earth after the flood? I think it's not an either or like either single incursion or multiple incursion um, explain it. I think it's a both and. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah, so you just kind of cleared up some things because I've heard you speak on this. And, of course, I my mind focused on kind of that single incursion with your, your proposition about genetics, which is really fascinating. I, I think one thing I asked Ryan Peterson about was uh, Esau and just how hairy he was. I and mean, it's, it's so fascinating because they're twins, him and Jacob both. And, of course, physically, Esau is so different than Jacob. And, you know, it was something that sort of tripped him up. But it was so bizarre. And I think Timothy Albarino is one that pointed this out on someone's podcast. It just we, we often see like in the in the picture stories of Esau just being humanly hairy, but he puts on animal skins to mm -hmm. to um, to trick Isaac into thinking that he was Esau. So, and you also can see the depiction of like him like wearing look like animal skin shin guards or something like that. But in reality, it wasn't that that was like his armor or anything. That was his actual hair. So it's it's just a bizarre thing. Um, and then of course later in scripture we see the Edomites. It seems that there's potential that there's giants in 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 his lineage. And so the question is how it, it's just. It's a really bizarre thing. So we're looking at Rebecca and Isaac here, <laughs> which is the the chosen line here, um, and, and there's this whole storyline of of that being usurped by Jacob, and, and Rebecca's told this that there's a battle going on in the womb. So there's this. It, it's just very bizarre. But once you paint it with what you just mentioned uh, about genetics, it it almost brings a light bulb to say, okay, well, it's it's that hatred that Esau had for Jacob after he took his blessing, stole his blessing, um, that end up bringing about these traits for his descendants. Um, and so, but do you think that Nimrod just had like, went beyond just like the normal, like, because you mentioned hatred or greed or, you know, any of these things could could trigger, you know, in, in, in Ham's case, it was the sexual perversion. Of course, there was the, the curse that Noah put him on, on top of that. But any of the things could trigger that uh, phenotype. But in Nimrod, we see that it wasn't necessarily for his descendants only, but he was actually physically changing in, in the present. So was there, I mean, it seems like there was must have been something intentional going on with the, the sexual deviancy that was going on with Nimrod, that it wasn't just like he happened to be deviantly sexually, but he was purposely trying to become a Gabor with what he was doing. Is that, that your assessment? Yes. Yeah, very yeah. much so. And I think, you know, even just what his name means rebellion. Um, yeah. and you know, when you look at some of the, some of the ways he carried himself and the things that he did, he definitely was positioning himself as an antichrist, um, you know, trying to outmaneuver, God, because, you know, he was, he was so upset with what God did with the flood that he thought, well, if we can build a tower, this tall tower, then God cannot wipe us out again. So he was like in defiance saying, I can outmaneuver you, Lord. And, you know, that comes from an, a heart motivation. It's not just he accidentally was deviant sexually. No, I think he purposely um, was deviant sexually. And that began this process of just going down a very slippery slope into the dark side to a point where he, 
he transformed into this hybrid, um, I believe. And, you know, it's interesting as you, you mentioned about Esau and, you know, Esau had this transformation from Esau to Edom. And that turns out to be really important in the storyline of this Nephilim agenda. So I want to just, let me just kind of quickly summarize my perspective of what the Nephilim agenda is. And then I can talk more about this transformation from Esau to Edom. Um, So essentially for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with the Nephilim agenda, but it sounds like you've had guests on that would um, help educate them, but essentially it's, you know, it was this plan that was unleashed during the days of Noah, as we've been talking about, and it's the plan to defile the human genome through a pro- the propagation of a hybrid race of giants. Now, similar to Nimrod, the purpose of this Nephilim agenda is to overthrow God's kingdom. So, you know, what we do is we look back to the origins of it and it goes back to the seed war that we see in Genesis three. So after the fall, what God did is he declared war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity and the seed of Satan. One day Eve's seed would crush Satan. And that was the prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy then was to contaminate the seed of the woman by altering the genetic code of life. And this is where the fallen sons of God become really integral in Satan's strategy. And for those of your listeners that aren't familiar, you know, we can read about this both in Genesis 6, but also in the extra biblical text of the book of Enoch. So what we find is that during that time, the fallen sons of God, they, you know, they chose to leave their heavenly abode and they invaded the earth realm. They descended upon Mount Hermon. And then from there, they lusted after the daughters of men. They took them as wives, they mated with them, and they defiled the human genome by birthing a hybrid race known as the Nephilim. So that's essentially the Nephilim agenda. Now, the core, at the core of the agenda is the goal to strip us of our humanity. And this is how it kind of all ties together. And, you know, for those of your listeners that are interested in diving more into this, what I do is um, I have a YouTube series that I started and it's a 10 part series called the impact of the Nephilim agenda today. And in 30 minute segments, I kind of unpack all of it and connect the dots. So that will be helpful, but that's kind of it in a high level overview. So now if we think about what you were talking about earlier about Esau and Esau being really hairy and, you know, what, what is up with this and, and the transformation to Eden, this for me became, it was like one of those aha moments. I had several aha moments in writing this book, but this began to connect the dots. Um, once I understood this transformation that took place. So let me explain that a little bit. When we think about Esau, you know, he, um, the first mention of the color red in Hebrew in the Bible is mentioned in, uh, in reference to Esau's birth. And it's the Hebrew word Adamoni, and it means um, reddish of hair or complexion. And so when we think about the color red, it's kind of indelibly linked to the Edomites. So then if you look at the Hebrew word for Edom, it's Adam, and it means to be red. Now, again, with my naturally inquisitive mind, I'm like, what the heck does it mean to be read? And so I began just looking in scripture, what, what is the biblical meaning of the color red? Now there's always, 
the redemptive aspect and then the defiled aspect. And so the redemptive aspect of the color red, we have, you know, the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of Jesus. And then throughout scripture, the defiled aspect of the color red, there's all sorts of connections aligning it with the seed of Satan. And so when you think about this story of Esau, Esau chooses to trade his birthright for red lentil stew. And, you know, as, as a side note, that red lentil stew is the traditional meal that the eldest son would make for the grieving father. So here we have Esau, he's the eldest son. He's not in the tent making the stew, but he trades his birthright blessing for this red lentil stew. And I believe what happened on that day is he rejected the birthright blessing of Abraham and Isaac, and he aligned himself with the seed of Satan in this seed war. So there's always this choice that God gives us. Who are you going to align with? We see this in the life of Saul, um, and we see this here in Esau's life. He chooses to align himself with the seed of Satan, and that... um, you know, on that fateful day, what he declared is that he is separate from Yahweh. Now, as I mentioned, Esau should have been the one in the tent because he was the oldest. He was the firstborn. He should have been the one making this traditional meal to comfort Isaac because Abraham had just died. But instead, what he's doing is he's out on the fields or in the fields and he's killing things. And we learn this from the extra biblical text of the book of Joshua. He's killing Nimrod and two of his men. And so this is the backdrop to when he runs in from the fields famished and weary. It's because he just killed Nimrod and two of his men. And he's on the run from all the rest of Nimrod's men. And in that moment, he trades his birthright. And that actually constricts his allegiance to a particular seed. And that is the seed of Satan. And so again, he aligns with um, Satan and that, that transformation from Esau to Edom is actually has substantial ramifications on his bloodline. So here's where it becomes um, interesting. Now, Esau had a son named Iliaphaz and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. Timnah bore Iliaphaz a son and they named him Amalek. Now, Timna's father was a chief in the Horite tribe. And so, you know, for me, I was like, okay, who are the Horites? Well, they're listed in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that they themselves were giants, but more that they intermingled with the giants, meaning they interbred, they mixed species. And so here you have um, Amalek. He's got Edomite bloodline on one side and Horite bloodline on the other side. And most likely he's a carrier of the Nephilim genes. Well, his name actually confirms that his name means blood liquor, as in someone who devours something and licks up the blood. Hmm. So all throughout scripture, you know, we learn very interesting things about the Edomite tribe, you know, moving forward. You know, they're they're mentioned in scripture as being wise, but also, you know, they're incredibly hateful and bitter. They're vengeful. They're, uh, you know, these cruel inflictors of terror. Uh, They're prideful and arrogant. Scripture talks about how they're occultists, they're idolaters, they're murderers. 
they're also opportunists and they engage in genocide and scripture even talks about um, some of them being hybrids. So that's what we learned from scripture. But then when we look also at uh, Josephus's historical record of the Edomites, we learn also that they engage in syncretism. So at times they embrace Judaism when it's in their best interest, but they, they always kind of hold on to this element of polytheism. Well, it just becomes interesting when you follow the trail of the Edomites throughout history. Um, one of the places it leads to is Rome, which is really um, was very surprising to me. And, you know, how I began to unpack this is through Isaiah 34. Now, most of us would overlook this if it were not for one of the commentaries. And this is Clark's commentary. And in it, Clark, um, what he does is he quotes the venerable Rabbi Kimchi. And this is what Rabbi Kimchi says about Isaiah 34. It says, this chapter points out the future destruction of Rome, which is here called Basra. For Basra was a great city of the Edomites. Now the major part of the Romans are Edomites who profess the law of Jesus. The emperor Caesar Constantine was an Edomite, and so were all the emperors after him. The destruction of the Turkish empire is also comprehended in this prophecy. So here I'm like, okay, wait a second. I read Isaiah 34, and there is no mention of Rome in, in my Bible and any of my translations in Isaiah 34. So I'm scratching more and thinking, okay, how do we, why is kimchi making this very clear connection between Edom and Rome? And, you know, in part, it could be due to the fact that Edom is considered, um, you know, a type of antichrist. And there's, you know, great number of eschatological um, scholars who connect the Antichrist coming out of Rome. So maybe kimchi was kind of thinking similarly, that's mm -hmm. possible. But when you dig further, and I'm one of those that I'm an absolute book nerd, I, I literally love the smell of books. And so when I can find an original source, it, it just totally excites me. So in part of my writing this book, I'm just like, Lord, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And so I just kept digging and I found this book um, by William Beeston. And I didn't actually, I didn't have my hands on the book, although that would have been incredible, but there's archives that I was able to um, pour through. And so William Beeston back in 1858, he wrote this book called The Roman Empire, The Empire of the Edomite. And what Beeston does is he actually presents a very different um, historical account of the founding of Rome and one that we don't see in our history books right now, nor do we see in our Bible. So as I was like trying to understand Beeston more and how he arrived at this, I realized that part of how he discovered this was again, through etymological linguistic study. So that excited me because that's what the Lord was having me do in my writing. 
And so here was this man back from 1858 that was doing a similar thing. He was digging into the etymology of these words, but then he also paired it with rabbinic tradition and Bible prophecy. So I just want to read a couple of excerpts from what he wrote, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. He says, the story of the foundation of Rome and the people from whom the eternal city sprung are admitted to being the very points about which the learned are most ignorant. Unspeakable then most our astonishment be when we perceive that this grand secret was certainly discovered and disclosed more than 1200 years ago that the true answer to the question whence came the Romans may have been returned and even registered in writing before the birth of Christ that the response proceeded neither from Greek nor Roman. It has been preserved to us in the Jewish Targums that it may be comprehended in these 20 words. The Romans came from Esau, who is Edom, and Italy is the Idumea, Rome, the Basra of the Hebrew prophets. And then he goes on to write, the descendants of Esau were the sworn enemies of the descendants of Jacob, even to the end of the world, where at first a small nation inhabiting Mount Sire and the adjacent country contiguous to the land of Canaan. They were easily confined within their own limits, so long as the Israelites enjoyed a great and formidable empire in Canaan. But after the powerful Republic of the 12 tribes had been destroyed by the Assyrians and Babylonians. They wonderfully increased in numbers and in strength, they being the Edomites, and extended their dominion in the West, subjugated Italy, founded Rome and the Roman Empire, and at length entirely overturned the Jewish state. The second temple being destroyed by Titus Vespasian and professing the religion of Christ, which they were the first of all nations to embrace. The rabbins further assert that the prophecies of the prophets against Esau, Edom, and the cities of Edom have as yet received but a partial accomplishment and that they will obtain their fulfillment in the punishment and destruction of Rome Christian. Such is the tradition of the, rab the rabbins and papal Rome has done her utmost to suppress it, but without success. So let me unpack that a little bit because that's a lot. So what, what Beeston is saying here is now he refers to the Jewish Targum, which is the um, it's the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And within this Targum, there's this important connection between Rome and Edom. Now, the reason they translate it. So when the Israelites were taken into captivity, the society that they then were part of, they spoke Aramaic, you know, the, the people of that society. So out of necessity, the Israelites had to become bilingual. So they spoke Aramaic in their social and business transactions, but then they continued to speak Hebrew at home and then also in their religious gatherings. So the Targum became part of Jewish traditional literature with its inception being during the second temple period. So that's important to keep in mind. Now, yeah. Beeston, as he was continuing to research, what he came across was this translation of Lamentations 4.22 by a guy named Johann Buchstorf. And Johann Buchstorf, he was a, a 16th and 17th century Hebraist, meaning he was he was greatly revered and he was known as one of the master rabbis or master of the rabbis, I should say. 
And what's interesting is, so he translated from the Targum, again, the Targum is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So Buchstorff translated from Aramaic into Latin. And one of these passages of interest is Lamentations 4.22. Now, I did a little bit more study. I'm like, okay, well, when was Lamentations written? Well, Lamentations was written after the second temple was constructed. So the second temple was constructed around 586, or excuse me, 597 BC. And Lamentations was written in 586. Now, Rome was founded in 753 BC. So Rome was founded first, then you have the second temple was reconstructed, and then you have Lamentations written. Okay, so that's the timeline. Now, what I want to do is read Lamentations from our current Bibles. This is Lamentations 422 from the New King James Version. It says, the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Now, what um, Buchstorff did, again, he translated Lamentations 422 into Latin. Well, since I don't speak Latin, and I'm sure most of your audience doesn't understand Latin, when we look at the English translation of what Buchstorff um, of Lamentations 422 it says this, it says, and at that time, I will punish your iniquities, wicked Rome, built in Italy and filled with crowds of Edomites. So that's really interesting. Now, I love what Beeston did because he didn't take it at face value that this translation from Buchstorff was accurate. What he did is he, he had to uh, substantiate it. And so in his research, he found the first edition of the Biblia Hebraica Rabbinica, which was a Bible that was printed in 1517 and 1518 by Bomberg of Venice. So this was a hundred years before the King James Version Bible was um, written. And what Beeston, he was able to locate this in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. And again, this is back in, in the 1850s is when he found this. But it, this Bible goes all the way back to the 1500s. And in, the, in that Bible, it confirms Buchstorff's translation of Lamentations 422. And so what wow. this suggests is in the translation, you know, as the Bible progressed and the King James Bible came out, the connection between the Edomites and Rome was removed. Yeah. And that's yeah. why we have no understanding yeah. that there's this connection here. That's crazy. And um, just one last point on this. Another book that I read is called The Esau Effect. And this is by Kimberly Rogers. This was, you know, um, more recent book. But what she does is she points out the influence uh, of the Edom Edomites within the ranks of the Roman soldiers. And I'll just read a short excerpt. She says, the Romans were conquering peoples. And when the armies needed more recruits, they hired them from outside their culture. Enter the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. Esau, who it was said would live by the sword. The ranks of the Roman empire became filled with enlisted Edomites. These particular Edomites were the original Edomites from the area of Mount Sair. Edom came and the control 
excuse me, Edom came under the control of the Arabs in the fifth century BC. The mercenary Edomites among the Assyrians that moved north to Rome enlisted in large numbers into the Roman army. Historians and rabbis alike agree that Rome and Edom became one and the same entity. So it's crazy just the connections there. <laughs> that truly is crazy. Yeah, no, that was a... Uh... Uh, that was just mind blowing when I read that in your book, um, and then and then you you bring it uh, down to the Federal Reserve. But I want to go back to to Esau for a second because you refer to the the Book of Jasher uh, of him essentially hunting uh, for Nimrod. Uh, that gives us the context behind um, what happened with him giving up his um, not his blessing, but his uh, his birthright. Mm -hmm. So. In, I think in there they talk a little bit about uh, like the, the the covering that he's wearing, but we don't have to talk about that. My question here is just a, a point of clarification. If he's hunting for Nimrod, and and you say now he's now aligning uh, essentially with Satan, he's making his, his choice, and he's mm -hmm. just giving up his birthright is worthless to him. I mean, that's man, that's really hard to to swallow there because if we look at Esau being the firstborn, what his birthright was. I mean, the Messiah was going to be birthed through his, his his lineage. I mean, this is a this is a big deal, and he just gives it up. And you know, you got to think why he would do that. Now, if he if he's hunting for Nimrod, you know, what's he doing that for? So it makes my point of clarity is is he now taking out Nimrod so that he can be essentially top dog. Now I am in Nimrod's place. And that is why I no longer need to worry about my birthright because I'm now making a name for oh. myself. I I have not thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. What's interesting is Esau is 15 years old when that happens. And so that's, I love that thought. Um, that here he, now what, what happened between Nimrod and Esau, and it, it talks about this, and I don't have the passage in front of me, but in Joshua seven, it talks about how, you know, Nimrod was essentially checking out Esau because there was some jealousy there. You know, Nimrod was known as this great hunter. He was a yeah. hunter of men of even. Men. Yeah. And, um, but here Esau comes on the scene and at 15 years old and, and even less than that, Nimrod is checking out Esau because Esau is a threat to Nimrod's greatness. So there was this, this rivalry. And I think, you know, I would imagine for Esau, he saw it as a challenge um, that if I can take out, like you say, the top dog, what does that make me? And I love that thought because it would make so much sense. Like here he is just fresh off of this adrenaline rush of conquering Nimrod, the top dog, the mighty hunter of men he takes out. And then he runs into the tent and trades his birthright because maybe you're right. Maybe he felt like I don't need God in my life because I am the best. I just took out Nimrod. Yeah. That adds a, another dimension to it yeah yeah and this is what, yeah just painting that context behind it, it's just kind of what came to my mind my second um question is uh, this will be um, this will be our last question i guess um i think a lot of times when we talk about nephilim and genetics uh sometimes it can lead to some poor understandings sometimes 
unfortunately, like this, these racist ideas of these people groups are evil and these people are righteous kind of thing. And you've painted this idea that with Esau being an example, we have a choice. You know, it's not like his genetics is not what made him um, what what he became to be. Um, he 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 made his choices. Everyone is free to make those choices. Um, anytime I've I've heard this kind of concept of it just being only about genetics, whereas we see the Israelite conquests and they're they're taking out. Um, you know, Nephilim tribes and, and, and groups, and it, it becomes about preserving genetics. My mind always goes back to, to Rahab, who was a prostitute, and to um, Ruth, who was a Moabite, uh, being in the lineage of, of, of Jesus. Um, and so um, I guess I invite you to comment on that and then comment just on, on, on general where we see today the potential for you, I, or, or anyone to be carrying the Nephilim gene and, and, and what that really means and what it, what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I think it goes back to what I was sharing earlier about epigenetics. You know, we can, in our bloodline, we can be carrying something, but our lifestyle choices, you know, our behaviors, our thoughts uh, can affect whether or not we unlock that good or bad. So for example, curses running in our bloodline, you know, if we, if we open the door uh, to these familial spirits that are running through our, our bloodline, open the door through thoughts, fears, word curses that we speak over ourselves, then we can unzip that uh, defilement in our bloodline, so to speak. We can develop diseases, you know, all sorts of things can happen to us. And on other podcasts, I share my, my personal story with deliverance and how that happened in my own life. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with um, our choices. And, you know, even with Saul, as an example, King Saul, you know, he, he's the first king that God chooses. Now, God didn't want a king for Israel, but they did. And so God chooses Saul as the yeah. first king of Israel. Well, within Saul, and I write about this in my book, and I don't have time necessarily to elaborate, but within Saul are these Nephilim genes. You know, it talks about his father is a mighty one. And, you know, we know from scripture that Saul was head and shoulders taller above, you know, anyone else. And, but he was given a choice where was he going to align in the seed war? And God commanded Saul to Haram the Amalekites. Again, the Amalekites come from Amalek, whom I talked about earlier. This is the grandson of Esau. And at the time, the king of the Amalekites was Agag, King Agag, when Saul was, was commanded by God to Haram. And that's that Hebrew word meaning to completely exterminate, to destroy. When he was commanded to Haram the Amalekites, Saul did not obey. He preserved King Agag. And when you look at what Josephus writes about, he describes the reason why King Saul preserved Agag. And that was because he found Agag attractive and worthy of preservation. Well, in scripture, it talks about how a Agag was a giant. He was, you know, very tall. And so here we have King Saul. He had the Nephilim genes within him, but he had a choice. 
God always gives us a choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to align ourselves with the Lord and his kingdom? Or are we going to align with the seed of Satan? And when Saul failed to haram the Amalekites completely, and he preserved King Agag, he essentially aligned himself with the seed of Satan. And that's one of the reasons why he lost his kingship. Uh, so I believe that, you know, um, yes, there's something to genetics, but epigenetics is, is huge. And that really gives us responsibility in a way for how we live our lives and what doors we open and what doors we close. And, you know, I go back to that scripture in Isaiah 22, 22, that he's given us the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever we bind on earth will, will have been already bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. And so we have the authority to cleanse our bloodline. We have the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. You know, we've been given that dominion authority because of Jesus's death and resurrection. The question is, what do we do with it? Or do we open the door to the demonic and to that defiled bloodline that we might have and just fall into the same generational iniquity of our forefathers. And, and we always have a choice in the matter. And, um, you know, I, I like to speak about how we can overcome and break that generational iniquity because God's equipped us to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, well, first, as we're kind of closing up, I'd say I'd love to have you back on. There's uh, a lot more that I'd love to kind of talk to you about. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Um, but I, I love what you said, because looking at curses versus blessing, where, you know, we see Jacob, who a very flawed person, mm -hmm. received blessing from his father, Isaac. And we see just immediately, um, you know, what happened to him at, at Bethel and, 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 and how blessed he was for all of his life. Um, and then going back to Saul, you know, comparing his reign versus David's, mm -hmm. you know, Scripture says that part of his diso Saul's disobedience was was fear of man, um, yes. and and that really is a form of idolatry. Whenever mm -hmm. we are making our decisions based off of how we feel others view us, we have ambition, and so we put the fear of man over. Our obedience to God, which is exactly what he did. He said, it it matters to me more what the people think mm -hmm. than what God thinks. Absolutely. And, and that that is idolatry. Um and, and we, we compare that to what David's reign is, you know, also very flawed. And we look at his rap sheet, just even compared because you can look at what um what Saul did. And at the face of it, you think, well, this is very minimal. I mean, like, well, you know, yeah, I mean, he, and the same thing when he, he made the sacrifices before Saul got there, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, but when you look at what's underneath all that, what he was, he wanted to make, his, his allegiance were, were all off in, in the wrong places. And despite everything that, that David did, he had... A fear of the Lord, um, and that's one thing that you you can never say that he didn't have. He had that very strong, and that, that's what gave him, emboldened him to take on you know lions and for his flock, and then take on Goliath, um, is because he he had his his, his allegiance to. 
to God. Um, so anyway, that's a that's an incredible, encouraging note to sort of end end this uh, interview on. Uh, so I want to thank you again for coming on, um, and invite you to come on again. Um, so I'll uh, invite you to kind of give us any any closing thoughts where people can get in touch with you, get your book, uh, and then you can close us out in prayer. Yes, absolutely. So the best place to reach me is through my website, which is called nolongerenslaved.com. And then from there, uh, you can order my book. It's available. I mean, it will take you to Amazon. So it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but you can order from my website as well. And then on my website, I have articles. If you want to receive my monthly articles, you can sign up, subscribe, and um, you'll get them automatically. I don't inundate your inbox. I only send once a month. Um, and then also I have all my podcasts and videos. Uh, people can also follow me on YouTube and Rumble. My station is no longer enslaved. And that's where I'm going through that 10-part series on the impact of the Nephilim agenda today. I just completed part nine. Part eight and nine um, got pulled from YouTube. And so it's really important that people also follow me on Rumble. And then um, I'm also on Telegram, which my public channel is Laura Sanger, 444 Hertz, HZ. And let's see what else. Um, those are the best places, uh, you know, to get in contact with me. If you want to email me, you can do that through my website as well. So I am thrilled to be with you and I will um, end us in some prayer. Wow. So Lord, we, we come before you and we are so grateful for who you are. Father, we're grateful that you care so much about us, that you are a creative provider, that no matter what happens in the world in these upcoming months and years, Lord, we know that we can turn to you for provision. We're so grateful for the promises in Matthew 6, Lord, that you know you, you clothe the lilies of the fields and you feed the birds of the air. And how much more so will you do for us that we don't have to worry about what we'll eat or what we'll um, be wearing because your provisions are so beautiful and so creative. Lord, I pray that you would teach each one of us to lean into you and to trust in you and you alone. And Lord, just as Samuel shared earlier about Psalm 91, Lord, we take refuge in you. We want to hide in the shadow of your wings because we know that the enemy can't even find us when we're hidden in the shadow of your wings. And what a beautiful place to be in your presence. So Father, I pray that your encouragement would go forth um, in each of our hearts, Lord, that we would know Jesus as our living hope. Jesus, we are grateful that because of what you did on the cross and with your resurrection, that hope never dies. And so we cling to you in these days. We thank you that you've made each one of us, created us for such a time as this. While the days seem dark, so is the brightness of your light. And Lord, we can shine so clearly in the darkness and dispel darkness. So Lord, fill our hearts with uh, love for one another. Allow our hearts to beat as your heart beats and allow us to decree your purposes into the earth realm. In Jesus' name, amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.